Welcome back to another brusque episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Tom Cruise, but who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! Today's episode takes place between the end of the year 1957 and March of 1958. Rock and roll masterpiece Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry had just been recorded and was about to be released as Syracuse National Dolph Shays sets an NBA record by scoring a career total of 11,777 points. The Brooklyn Dodgers had just relocated to Los Angeles as future Hall of Fame baseballer and American hero. Ted Williams becomes the highest paid player in MLB history by re-signing with the Boston Red Sox for a whopping $135,000. At the same time, a young Liverpudlian teenager named Richard Starkey had just received his first drum set, which would eventually lead him to receive the nickname Ringo Starr. See episode 8 if somehow you were unfamiliar. And of course, Elvis Presley had just been officially inducted into the United States Army, but you already knew that since you already listened to episode 14, right? Today's story follows the tale of a Native American man who by wielding an electric guitar managed to roughen up the course of rock and roll history by making the genre dangerous, sexy, and even more notorious than ever before. And he did it all by only strumming three simple little guitar chords. Amazing, right? Garage rock, punk rock, heavy metal, all the rocks, all the metal, all owe this man their respect and beer. A man named Link Ray and the big little song he came up with called Rumble. I hope you're familiar with this song, but if not, then do you even listen to rock and roll, bro? No, but really, for those who haven't, well, don't worry, because those who have don't know the story behind it anyway. This is another one of those stories that falls into the often overlooked category in rock and roll history. And now before we get into it and discover how rock and roll became truly dangerous, let's hop on into the old time machine. Roll that clock on back, this time to the date, May 2nd of 1929, and set our destination to a little town named Dunn in North Carolina and find out who this native rock and roll rebel, Link Ray, really is. Fred Lincoln Ray Jr. was born May 2, 1929 in Dunn, North Carolina to Fred Lincoln Ray Sr., a pipe fitter who received disability checks because of the mustard gas he encountered during World War I, and his mother Lily Mae Coates, who was a spiritual woman but not tied to any organized church or religion. Since the beginning, Ray said he had been in the grips of Satan ever since birth. His mother was crippled, which caused some complications during Link's birth, and so the midwife told her, Well, to save your life, we gotta kill the baby. To which she replied, Don't you kill my baby? I don't care if I die, you do not kill my baby. So the doctor said, Okay, and then took metal forceps and pulled out baby Link Ray straight out of her womb. He says he even has the scars on both sides of his head to prove it. Both she and baby Link survived. His early life was spent in poverty, with which Link being one of 12 kids is easy to understand. The family lived in a shack his father built along the side of a highway, Link called it a mud hut, with no electricity, heating, or floors, and he would usually attend school barefoot with rags for clothes. 
Each and every night, they would turn off their kerosene lamps, and Link would go to sleep on the dirt floor alongside his older brother Vernon and younger brother Doug, oftentimes crying as they drifted off to sleep because they were so hungry. Despite the family's shortcomings, though, they were remembered by friends as being one big happy family. They were unique, warm, and close to one another. It's said that they were so tight that you could have woven a piece of string through them and made a broom. The family had Native American roots, which his father being of Cherokee descent, and his mother full-blooded Shawnee, which they were very proud of their heritage, yet they needed to keep those facts under wraps. Being Native at the time didn't bode well for anyone, it being the 1930s and all, and in a place like Dunn, North Carolina, they were looked down upon as third-class citizens. Natives at the time were hated by most of the whites in the community, and even shunned by some of the other people of color. It wasn't a safe time to be a native. His mother Lillian refused to teach her children how to speak the Shawnee language because she feared what could happen to them if they were heard speaking it around town. She was scarred by a memory of a time from her youth when she was 11 years old. A white girl put her knee straight into her back while she was on her way home from school and it shattered her spine, partially paralyzing her and leaving her crippled. And so as you can understand, when the consensus rolled around, they always made sure to mark themselves off as white just to play it safe. KKK meetings were also pretty common in the town, and Link said the cops, the sheriff, the drugstore owner were all Ku Klux Klan. They put their masks on, and if you did something wrong, they'd tie you up to a tree and whip you or kill you. When the rallies would start up and the robes would come out, and they would start burning their crosses, Link's mother would shut off all the lights and cover up every window with blankets. It was very common for native mothers to have to hide their kids under the beds, in barns, or even in swiftly dug holes in the ground. This was a very demeaning and humiliating way to live. Link said the town of Dunn was just one big hell, and this hell would keep continuing for him after he contracted a bout of German measles. This left him with weak eyesight, hearing, and what people have described as a wild stare. Friends have said that this would cause him to live in a dimension all his own, and he would pretty much remain in there for the rest of his life. It wasn't all bad in Dunn, North Carolina, though, and despite the rampant racism, poverty, and disease, Link remembers other times of his youth fondly, like wandering around the woods and playing near the local ponds, chasing bullfrogs, catching fish, and all the like. Often he would accompany his mother into brush fields where she would preach to the hard-working Cherokee, blacks, and poor whites. She would speak the good word of the Lord and spread the message for them to keep their heads up, morals high, and to trust and believe in God. Link was inspired by her commitment to Jesus and said that her preaching could at times be frightening, really frightening and powerful. He said he knew his mother had something special going for her, like she had a connection with the spirit world and stated that he would frequently see a blue light emanating from her like an aura. He said it was her God, it was his God, it was their God, and that it was a very real God. It was very spiritual and a very mighty God. She imprinted her love of God on her kids, and even though they all viewed organized religion as being a racket, she would have her kids singing gospel songs like Will the Circle Be Unbroken while they were out in the streets of town, which would also become an introduction to a lifelong love of music for all of them. Music was part of Link's life from a very early age. When Link was only eight years old, his father managed to acquire a guitar for one of Link's brothers who ended up being more interested in playing outside, so the guitar just sat in the corner for a while collecting dust, that is, until young Link decided to pick it up himself and began plucking away. He remembers it being a Maybell guitar with big, thick, chunky black diamond strings on it. The guitar wasn't even tuned and he had no clue what he was doing, but he didn't mind at all and he would sit out on his porch all day picking away. Complete with that wild stare of his, I'm imagining he looked something like that kid from Deliverance. 
Anyway, while sitting on his porch, he would watch the neighbors go by and while plucking away on his strings, trying to emulate the vibrant sounds he would hear drifting through the air and across the street from the houses of his many black neighbors. One day, one of those neighbors, a man who recently sent up a tent in a nearby vacant lot across the street, approached the eight-year-old Link Ray. Before even introducing himself, the man said, hey boy, let me tune your guitar. And so Link handed over the instrument and the man began tuning it up right then and there on the spot. Once it was all tuned up, he pulled out a bottleneck slide from his pocket and started singing the blues while strumming away. This left Link absolutely stunned. His jaw dropped as he was hypnotized by these sounds. He was enthralled and immediately fell in love with this new music. A little time later, his family would go visit the Barnum and Bailey Circus that had just recently come into town. After a few oohs and ahs at the tigers and elephants, young Link noticed a man off to the side. Upon further inspection, he realized it was the same man who came by and tuned his guitar for him. Link didn't care about the circus animals anymore because there was something more interesting going on. Music. And so Link begged his parents to let him go see the man instead with hopes of witnessing some more of that music. His parents then let him go over and talk to the man, and after this encounter, he ends up befriending this mysterious man. This mysterious man was only known by the name of Hambone, and no one really knows much about Hambone, except for that he was raised in the circus and the guy never really knew his parents. But since he grew up in the circus, he learned how to play just about every musical instrument there was, like guitar, drums, horns, all, everything. And as it turned out, he was quite proficient at them all. Hambone saw that this music gave uh, and lit a fire within Young Link, and so he took Young Link under his wing and would show him how to play the guitar, teaching the kid all the basics and all the skills he needed to play on his own. This new knowledge gifted by Hambone was like the water that would feed the seed that grew into the rest of Link Ray's musical career. Which was a good thing, because by the time Link was a teenager, his school career had abruptly ended. Cut short when he was caught shooting spitballs around the classroom by an ex-drill sergeant assistant principal. This principal grabbed Link and dragged him out of class and into a boiler room. He then proceeded to pull out a horse whip for punishment. Link says he started popping the whip right beside his ear, and this caused him to snap and see red. As the principal was cracking the whip, Link quickly looked up and saw a fire hatchet on the wall. He yanked it down and began to chase the principal all over the school with it. The young teenage Link would begin swinging the axe around like a madman and chasing down this principal trying to murder him. Link says in the moment he sort of lost touch with his own brain, as if he blacked out. Once he came to, he found himself just standing there out in the middle of the schoolyard with a hatchet in hand. After the initial shock of coming to wore off, he realized what he was actually doing, immediately threw down the hatchet and ran all the way home, never to return to school ever again. Which luckily for Link was around the same time the family relocated to Portsmouth, Virginia. It was a new beginning for both Link and the family. The father moved them into government housing in the naval yards in Portsmouth. Link said it was like a whole new world and he remembers being in awe of having things most of us take for granted. It was so amazing for them to finally have a stove that had an actual gas fire. It blew his mind that he could now just simply flip a switch and immediately have electricity and warmth. Could you even imagine what that would feel like to experience that for the first time in your teens? There was a lot of work available in this new town, so when Link was 14, he managed to pick up work as a messenger in the naval yard. And in two months, he earned enough to buy some new strings for his guitar. He was now ready to get started on his music career. Being in a port town was a great place to be for a new and young musician. 
There were so many sailors coming and going from where they were that of course there was abundance of bars and nightclubs to accommodate them all. This in turn would give tons of opportunity for Link to engage in the live music scene in Portsmouth. The first band he joined was a five-piece jazz combo with one of his brothers on drums. There was a piano player in the band named Gene who would show Link the ropes and introduce him to all the jazz stuff like minor chords and augmented chords. After that group, he had a stint in a 40-piece big band, which he described as playing Tommy Dorsey-type stuff, but it got boring for him quickly, and he only lasted about four months with it. Still intrigued with music, though, he would next sit in with the Phelps Brothers, which was a local country act. He actually paid them $20 just for the opportunity to play along with the backing band. In that band was a guitar player named Chick Hall, who Link said was fantastic. He would sit there and intently study Chick's fingers as he played, taking it all in, making notes as he went along. This is where Link really cut his guitar playing teeth. Watching Chick Hall turned Link onto many of the great guitar players of the time, and he began listening to and consuming music any chance and way he could. This is also the time when Link would start to develop his own unique playing style, a style where he was trying to emulate some of those great players like Atkins, Grady Martin, Tal Farlow, Les Paul, and Barney Kessel. He also got turned on to other musicians during this time as well, guys like Ray Charles and Hank Williams, which were also both enormous influences on him. By 1951, Link's musical odyssey would come to a grinding halt when he got drafted into the US Army. He was first stationed in Germany and then fought in the Korean War for two years. As soon as he got back home though, he purchased a brand new 1953 electric Gibson Les Paul guitar and a 30 watt Premier amplifier, which was kind of like a cheapy Sears amp. In the following months, Link and his brother Vernon and Doug started up on a country band called the Lazy Pine Wranglers. That same year, they got invited by Hank Williams' sister Irene to play a memorial in Mobile, Alabama for the singer's untimely death. While attending the memorial, Link got to watch a guy named Curtis Gordon perform. This was all pre-rock and roll, mind you, but he noticed how Gordon would get all the younger crowd screaming along with his set. He had a wild, raucous energy, and Link took a mental note of this, and it left a lasting impression on him. By 1954, Link and his brothers had their cousin, a bass player named Shorty Horton, join in their band, and they changed the group's name to the Palomino Ranch Gang. The Palomino Ranch Gang was the very first inklings of success for the Ray brothers. They managed to get a daily gig in one of the clubs in Portsmouth. Tuesdays were Link's day to take the lead, and he would experiment by jazzing up songs like the Tennessee Waltz, and he would get his brother Doug to play faster, and Link said he would beef up the sound. Link said he guessed what they were doing you could call rock and roll, but he said he didn't know that that's what they were playing at the time. And the audience being made up of mostly drunk sailors weren't really impressed by this new sound either. Link said they didn't receive any tips, but he was having a good time, so he didn't give a shit. Sounds pretty punk rock to me. All this regular playing time then managed to get the boys a few gigs backing some bigger western stars of the time like Tex Ritter and Lash LaRue. By 1955, the gang had made a connection with pioneering country radio DJ Connie B. Gay, whose influence had the gang relocate to Washington, D.C. Despite all the politics, it's said that at the time, Washington, D.C. was surprisingly full of hillbillies and they had plenty of watering holes where a bustling country music scene was thriving. A scene which included guys like Jimmy Dean, Marvin Rainwater, and Roy Clark. All these players took their turns recording in the same studio in D.C. And this is where also where Link and the Palomino gang would go on to make their first batch of recordings. 
It all went down in a one-track studio owned by a man named Ben Edelman called Empire Studios, the same studio where Patsy Cline cut her first demos. This recording session featured a song with Link's first appearance on lead vocals. It was an upbeat, beefier, rockabilly-style number called I Says Baby. They put it on a record along with another song called Johnny Bombani, and Edelman would sell the records out of the trunk of his car. But the songs didn't manage to catch on, and they didn't sell very many copies. That didn't stop Edelman and the Palomino gang, though, as they continued to hustle more records. They found some success with Link's brother Vernon, who was now going by the name of Lucky Ray as lead vocalist. He had a smoother voice, and this brought them more regional recognition, and there seemed to be an interest for some bigger labels. Right as things started looking up for everyone, with just his luck, Link started to get ill. It seemed like he had a cold all the time, and his friends said he began looking pretty bad. Link was stubborn though and insisted he was fine, despite growing paler in complexion and losing weight. It finally got so bad that one day, Link couldn't even get out of bed. They then rushed him to a doctor and it turned out he had double pneumonia and they discovered he contracted tuberculosis while fighting in the Korean War. After they cured the pneumonia though, Link began hemorrhaging. He said every time he exhaled he would breathe out blood and the doctors didn't think he would be able to survive the night. It took five doctors, eight hours, and the removal of his left lung, but he made it. He survived. Link said the first thing he did when he came out of the oxygen mask was thank God. The incision went from under his breast, down in a circular pattern to his waist, and up his back all the way up to his shoulder blade. So as you can imagine, he had to stay quarantined up in the hospital for some time. While recovering in the hospital, Link would have some spiritual experiences where he claimed to have seen God and he would pass the time by playing the blues guitar for other patients who were stuck in quarantine recovering alongside him. During this downtime, Link's brother Doug managed to pick up a gig drumming for a local TV music show hosted by Jimmy Dean. One night, Link turned on the TV to watch his brother play, then the guest star came out and it was a guy named Elvis who came out and did his whole a chunka chunka hubba hubba thing and it blew Link away. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. This new music was electrifying. It was rock and roll. It was right then and there Link decided that this was the way he wanted to go. He knew he couldn't sing, of course because he had just lost a lung, but as he lay there recovering in awe, he vowed that he would devote all his soul into music now. Which okay, fine. Thanks Elvis, I'll give credit where credit is due. And so now, here we are where our story takes place. It is now the end of the year 1957, and we're heading into 1958. And after a battle with illness and losing an entire lung, the doctors told Link that his playing days were over. They informed him that he would now be stuck sitting on the couch for the rest of his life. But Link wasn't having any of that and set out on a mission to prove to everyone that they were wrong. Link said when he went and laid down on that operating table, it was like the old Link died. And when he awoke, a new Link Ray was born. He said the Lord appeared before him shortly after this resurrection and zapped him full of this energy. This energy that would be one that would feed a fire inside of him and show everyone that against all odds, nothing was going to stand in his way. After leaving the hospital, Link joined up with his brothers once again and got back to playing the local circuit. At this time, they began going by the name the Raymen and being inspired by Elvis, the group would dress in all black leather. Link also realized at this time that he would never live up to being a squeaky clean player on the level of someone like Chet Atkins, 
but he owned it. He didn't care that he wasn't some kind of guitar virtuoso, and this wouldn't stop him from proving to everyone that he would not be stuck spending the rest of his life on a couch. He was now filled with that vigorous God-given energy, and so he chose to just embrace who he was and to lean into what abilities he did have. And this would cause him to look for new sounds that he could make with his guitar, which in turn created his own signature playing style. Here's a clip of, of Link uh, from an interview where he's describing his music at this time. What was well, it I never could Chet? play as good as Chet Atkins. <laughs> I tried to play clean like he did, you know, and, all, and Johnny Smith and Tower Harlow, they're all great musicians, you know. I don't consider myself a great musician. I just consider myself an a average guitar player who looks for sounds. I, and even, I said, I, I knew back in the old days I never could be a, a really good clean jazzer, a good, even clean country picker. So I was looking for sound, you know, pick, sticking holes in, 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 in tweeters because I, at that time you didn't have the electric boxes that you got today, you know. And I was taking hose pipes from, uh, from, uh, out, from the outdoor horns, the drivers from the outdoor horn, I'd put it in my mouth and go to the microphone and go wah, 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 and get a, you know, all kinds of different sounds because I had to make them up then, you know. That was from the Classic Rock on MV YouTube channel. It's a great little interview that gives insight into the kind of guy Link was. And it should be mentioned that he looks like a total badass, rocking a mullet, leather jacket, and some sunglasses. I recommend you check it out. So because of these sounds Link was making up, the Raymond managed to gain the attention of television disc jockey from Vermont named Milt Grant. Grant had a TV show in the Vermont area. It was called Milt Grant's House Party, and it was a similar show in style to Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Top acts of the day would mime to their new hit singles while the crowd of teenagers would dance along. To coincide with his show, Grant would also host live events in which bands would play and the kids would dance along for themselves in person. Milt thought the Raymen would be a good fit for one of these live shows, so he invited them to play one evening in Fredericksburg, Virginia in January 1958. The band took the stage and were playing some basic Chuck Berry style rhythm and blues for most of the night to get the kids dancing, but no one seemed to be interested in what the Raymen were selling. It was then that Milt Grant got a bright idea, and he goes over to the band and tells them that he just had a group on the show called The Diamonds. He asked Link uh, and the boys if they could play the hit song that The Diamonds had just performed on his show. It was a song called The Stroll, and Milt thought that this would really get the kids excited. Let's take a quick listen to that song. It's actually a pretty cool song, which you could totally envision someone like George McFly strolling across the dance floor trying to look cool. Anyway, so Milk Grant asked the boys to play this song, to which Link replied, I don't know no stroll. Link's brother Doug then chimed in that he was familiar with the song and began playing a drum beat that had a similar rhythm to the hit. What happens next would change the course of rock and roll history. Since Link had no idea what the stroll was, he just improvised right then and there on the spot. After a few bars of Doug's drum beat, Link then joined in by strumming three ringing chords. 
Immediately, the audience took notice of the band. Link's other brother then takes a microphone from the stage and puts it in front of Link's guitar amp, and now all the speakers of the PA began rattling and distorting, sounding like the speakers were about to explode. This got Milt Grant worried and he clutched his pearls as he motioned to the boys to stop. That is, until all the kids immediately rushed to the stage and the kids started going nuts over the sound that Link was now making. It was loose, it was wild, it was rock and roll. And the kids wanted more and began pounding on the stage and they kept yelling at the band. They kept going, play that crazy song! And so they did. And they played it about four or five times over the course of the evening. And that's when Milt Grant began seeing dollar signs. After the show, he walks up to Link and his brothers and the first thing he said was, we have got to get into a studio. They named the song Oddball and Link, Doug, Vernon, and Shorty recorded it for $57 in three takes in a one-track recording studio that was typically used for only recording politician speeches. During the session, Link had to stop the band and adjust his speaker. He couldn't quite get the sound that he got at the show. He wanted to emulate the rattling of the overdriven sound of the PA on the verge of exploding. So Link then takes off the cover of his amp speaker and began poking holes in the tweeter with a pen. Doug yelled at Link, you're tearing up your amplifier! To which Link replied, but I want that sound! What resulted was a rough and raw recording and what arguably is the first recording with intentional distortion on it. So take that Dave Davies in England. Milt Grant then took the copies of this recording and began passing it around to every record executive he could find. It eventually found its way to the desk of Cadence Records bigwig, Archie Blyer, who didn't think much of it. He actually hated it and tossed it aside without giving it another thought. That is until Archie's daughter Jackie found the record and put it on at one of her teenage dance parties. All her friends went wild over the song and she herself quickly became obsessed with the track and would play the record over and over again. She begged and pleaded with her dad to put out the record because she just loved it so much. The first thing Archie said was that it would never work because the title Oddball was too weird and it wouldn't sell. Jackie then suggested the name Rumble, since the track reminded her of a street fight like from her favorite musical West Side Story. Although, some sources do state that it was Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers who suggested the name. The Everlys were on Cadence Records at the time, so it's very much possible, but either way, Archie begrudgingly agreed and reached out to Link to re-record the record because he thought the track wasn't clean enough and that the bass was out of tune. To which Link replied, and I quote, Well, you either accept this or you don't get it at all. If you don't want this one, fuck you. So Archie put out the rough cut as is, true to Link's original sound, a song called Rumble. Taken from Eastwood guitar Legend of Link Ray blog, they say, starting in the middle of a four count, Rumble comes at you like killer fog on the highway, just three chords and a bad attitude. It slowly snakes through its changes, raising its spitting head during the scramble chord chorus. As Cub Coda puts it, four bars of sustained tension that hold the track in a vice grip until Link lays down the nastiest A chord imaginable. No warning, no escape, and certainly no end in sight. Rumble goes nowhere and everywhere all at once. This song added an element of danger to the sound of rock and roll and was the first instrumental track to be banned because some local politicians believed the sound and title would evoke gang violence. 
It was released March 31st, 1958, and it quickly shot up to number 16 in the national pop charts, number 11 on the R.A.B. charts, and remained in the top 40 for 10 weeks, selling millions of copies. Little Stevie Van Zant from the E Street Band said, That rumble riff by Link Ray, who really is the founder of hard rock, introduced the seven chord, which I don't want to get too technical, but the chord that You Really Got Me by The Kinks is based on, the Who's My Generation is based on, that chord change that we all call the one seven chord change, it's in the riff. That's what gives it that attitude. That attitude is immediately there in the first five seconds of the song. That attitude comes from that particular melody on that chord change. It's the sexiest, toughest chord change in all of rock and roll. And he's right. It is that attitude, that sexy and tough attitude and chord change that would go on to reshape how guitar players for all time would play guitar. This was even the introduction of the power chord, which all modern day guitar players play and utilize to just about every song to this very day. The power chord. That's Link Ray. Pete Townsend said, if it hadn't been for Link Ray and Rumble, I'd never have picked up a guitar. He remembers feeling very uneasy, but also very excited upon first listen of the track. Rolling Stone said he is the man responsible for the most important D chord in the history and credits Ray for creating the overdriven rock sound used by players even like Jimi Hendrix. Iggy Pop says he left school emotionally the moment he first heard Rumble and thought, fuck it, I'm gonna become a musician. Jimmy Page cites Rumble's profound attitude as an early influence, and Bob Dylan called the song the best instrumental ever. The song has been featured in countless TV shows, movies, and other forms of media, and I'm sure I could go on and on finding quotes from musicians about how influential this song was. But I think you get the idea. Every guitar player, every rock star, every musician who came after Rumble has been inspired by Link Ray and Rumble. That's how huge this one track is. This wasn't just a one-hit wonder scenario either. Link would have hits with songs like Rawhide, which sounds like an epic rock and roll party, and even had a record with Link on vocals, despite only having one lung called Ain't That Lovin' You, Babe, which makes Johnny Rotten sound like Davy Jones. Let's take a quick listen. Swim to the bank and crawl right home to you. It's a great track, and you can tell where Mick Jagger got some of his swagger. And I mean, that makes Lux Interior's career sound like he's doing karaoke of this song. Anyway, my point is, Link Ray is legendary, as you can see. And single-handedly, well, with the help of his brothers and his cousin Shorty, the four native boys, the Raymen, changed history and despite all odds stacked against them along the way, managed to bring their oddball of a song into the rock and roll lexicon, forever changing the human psyche and experience for the better. Or worse, depending on who you ask. If this subject interests you, I highly recommend you watch the documentary film called Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World. It's not only about Link Ray, but it shines light on the hidden history of the Native American influence on popular music and how important it was and, the, and how important these forgotten legends truly were. I don't want to give too much away because I might do more on this subject in the future, but for sure check it out. It is worth your time. So there you have it folks, Rumble by Link Ray, a Native American rebel rocker who made rock and roll more dangerous, more sexy, more raw, more real. 
Imagine the world we would live in without it. Actually, don't do that, because that's a very sad world. another episode of rock and roll history there we have it folks sorry for the delay i was gonna wait until april 1st and do like an april fool's thing but i didn't think that made much sense uh so anyways stick around for the next show and in the meantime remember to rock and roll